This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer on the show helping Canada's vets retrain and reskill. Keeping seniors active and connected, Amanda Marshall's original song collection and ready to tee off at the Canadian Open. But we begin with Pride and Prejudice. York Region made headlines here and around the world last week when its Catholic District School Board voted against raising the pride flag. This symbolic gesture marks the start of what is to be a month of celebration and reflection for LGBTQ2 plus communities and beyond. This move by the board, or lack thereof, has cast a shadow over Pride Month and has deepened the divide between those who support and those who do not. Kristen Kuhlman is PFLAG York Region's president. Undoubtedly, he has a lot to say. He joins us now on the feed. Tristan, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. And my first question is the obvious one. What was your initial reaction to the board's decision not to raise the Pride flag? Uh, it was shock. It was disappointment. Uh, to be frank, I was a little pissed off. Um, and uh, going into that evening as well, in the conversation that I've had with a couple of trustees and senior staff, uh, the motion was crafted in a way to try to get as many votes as possible. Uh, in the motion itself was, you know, a little pathetic in that it would only allow for the flag to be flown at one location within the York Catholic District School Board and a location that's not frequented by students as well. Uh, but that's what they thought they could get passed, and they couldn't even do that. Um, and when that uh, motion failed to pass, uh, two students in front of me, um, Patrick and ECO, they were the students who actually delegated the month prior um, in bringing this motion forward and really gaining more momentum on the issue. And uh, they just burst into tears, and they were sitting directly in front of Chair Alexander. It was just such a, a heartbreaking moment to watch. Are you aware that this has made headlines around the world and the reaction has been swift and sure and on the negative side? It's just started to sink in just how wide this has spread. Uh, you know, our, lo- our focus is always locally in trying to uh, advocate locally and trying to get the message out locally. Uh, but it's started to trickle in that there's a lot of stuff happening or a lot of attention nationally and worldwide, which is, uh, you know, quite uh, striking. My, my partner's actually in Amsterdam right now and sent me a headline from over there. So, uh, you know, that um, was quite striking that something from here in little old York region is really having a worldwide impact and uh, it, it, unfortunately in a negative way. This is not the first time that you and, and all members of the community have had problems with the York Catholic District School Board. Uh, no, it hasn't. Um, we have, uh, we've had a a fraught relationship over the years. Um, it, we've been essentially frozen out for quite a long period of time, which has really prevented us from connecting. And that's all we've really wanted to do. We wanted to keep the conversation going. We wanted to keep connected to what's happening within your Catholic District School Board to better inform and to better um, show how they can support queer students and other marginalized students. If you're an institution that's looking to change and is looking to improve student lived experiences, and why wouldn't you uh, bring someone into the fold who's willing to talk to you instead of seeking it out and maybe paying for 
or a consultant or whatever that might be. We're all volunteers here and we do this on our uh, own time. And, uh, you know, any time or anything that I invest my time into, I consider that a worthy cause uh, because my time is limited. So uh, they should, you know, they should really have been uh, really respectful of that and they haven't been over the years. What has been the reaction within the LGBTQ2 plus community? How does it feel to have something like this happen? What does it do to your heart and your soul? You know, for some queer folks, it really continues to validate that uh, they're feeling um, that their lived experiences really have no place in in spaces of faith. And that's really an unfortunate thing to see and think because we've never felt that way at PFLAG. We've always felt that uh, faith and queer lived experiences can intersect and, uh, and can live together harmoniously. But when decisions like this are made uh, and you hear comments like, this being a poison pill issue uh, and other comments that were just quite ignorant at the board meeting. Uh, it continues to show that um, there are folks within the institutions of faith that just continue to not be serious about their learning and continue to use faith as a smokescreen. And it really makes folks feel uncomfortable around those spaces. Uh, it also can motivate the community as well. There's a lot of individuals who are starting to mobilize and do their little own events uh, around the region and um, uh, little protests or little, um, you know, just bringing or encouraging their friends and family to bring flags to school and items like that. So um, it, it, there, there's certainly a, a strong mobilization around this now, especially given this is happening in 2023 of all times. Tristan, there are close to 50,000 students enrolled in the York uh, Catholic District School System. What message are they receiving from all of this? The message that they're receiving is that they don't belong and that their voices don't matter. Uh, the student trustees were incredibly mobilized and had a motion ready to go that was sponsored by Trustee Crow, who bravely brought that motion forward regardless of uh, the outcome. And uh, it's... It shows them that uh, the the trustees really aren't listening to them, and it might make them feel like uh, you know, their uh, activism and uh, their messaging towards the trustees or towards anyone within the school board is just going to uh, is just going to land on deaf ears. Do you think that the Ontario government should step in now? Education Minister Stephen Lecce sent out a memo to all school boards this past Tuesday, and here's what it said: It is incumbent on all school boards to ensure all students, most especially LGBTQ2+ students, feel supported, reflected in their schools, and welcomed within our communities. But no mention of of the York Catholic District School Board at all. Yeah, you know, for any elected official to consider themselves to be a strong ally of the community and to support the community, you, you need to be courageous enough to say what's right. And uh, in this case, you know, they've almost gotten there, but, uh, you know, like this government, they always get there, but they just don't fully complete uh, you know, the path. So they need to outright say that this includes flying the pride flag. This includes properly studying um, student belonging and student climate surveys. This includes supporting uh, groups like GSAs and supporting other programs which affirm and create safe spaces for queer students and queer staff. Uh, it, those are very simple things to direct and very simple things to mention, but they're not there. And I know that they want to leave things open to um, individual school boards to figure out what is best locally for them, but there's nothing wrong with making a suggestion. And especially when it comes to a flag raising, uh, we know what that symbol means for our community, and it would be an incredibly powerful statement if the minister uh, and uh, if our premier would actually say that. 
and their presence at a Pride Festival, you know, likely in Newmarket this year, um, without being very direct about their support is, uh, is nothing short of just, you know, uh, checking a box. I have to ask you, will we see Pride flags flying throughout York Region in spite of what's gone on with the Catholic District School Board? We 100% will. Uh, every um, York Region District School Board school and office has committed to flying the uh, the pride flag. Uh, so it's going to be at many schools across York Region. It's going to be at many businesses and their windows. Uh, and uh, it's going to be raised at every uh, town and in, uh, in city in York Region as well with various flag raising throughout the month. So uh, there's going to be no shortage of it. Uh, those students of York Catholic and the staff of admin will still be surrounded by that in their communities. Unfortunately, uh, the York Catholic School Board has chosen not to do that within uh, those spaces, and they're alone in that decision. To add insult to injury, there are now travel advisories warning against traveling to some parts of the U.S., Florida, and Tennessee, for instance, uh, for the community. What? How, how do you add that to everything else that's going on? And again, you said it, we're in 2023. We thought so many steps forward, and now we're taking so many steps back. It's a it's a movement uh, that is trying to do whatever it can to stifle our visibility and our lived experiences. You know, the Pride movement and our um, our queer liberation movement has been rooted in that visibility, and Pride festivals um, uh, promote that visibility and to create laws that um, you know, really restrict a lot of what uh, these Pride festivals do. Uh, it's very intentional. Uh, it's uh, it's really disappointing to, to see that. Uh, it makes me question uh, where I'm going to travel in the future. Uh, Florida used to be a location for me because I do enjoy Florida, but uh, it's not going to be moving forward uh, because of what's happening there. And not because I don't feel safe, but because you know I make choices about uh, where I put my dollars and I'm not going to invest it in a state or let alone a country um, that is uh, so unfriendly to the queer community. Tristan, does it take courage to be authentic, to be who you are, to love who you want? It definitely takes courage. Uh, I I still experience that myself. Uh, the courage to wear uh, a button on my bag that I take into work that says out and proud. Uh, the courage to go into school uh, for a student and to have a little flag on their bag or on the inside of their locker, uh, or to even walk through the doors of a GSA group, uh, to come to P-Flag support meetings, to go to anything um, that is queer affirming in York Region, or to even step inside a business that's got a rainbow flag in the window. Uh, it, it's still, um, it takes a lot of courage to do things like that, despite this being 2023 and there being so much support out there. Uh, there's still a lot of misconceptions and, uh, and a lot of people still fearful of coming out for a variety of reasons. And, um, you know, those reasons are justified in a way, but uh, there's so much support out there. And uh, it, people, especially young people, have so much more courage nowadays than I did when I was their age. And they do have the right to be more courageous because there is more support out there. And what message have you to our young people and, and students in particular who should see a school as a safe place, an inclusive place? I encourage students to be defiant and I encourage students to continue the fight. I have been so inspired by students over the years and in my time at PFLAG. Uh, they are incredibly courageous, they're incredibly brave, and they're very unapologetic about what they expect from the trusted adults in their school boards, uh, in their classrooms, uh, at their schools. They want to be affirmed and they demand it as well. And the 
the type of uh, you know demands that you see from students nowadays, and just that unapologetic, really sometimes defiant um, uh, perspectives uh, in the face of folks who don't want to provide those supports is truly inspiring and continues to inspire our work. So you know, my message to them is keep fighting because uh, you're a part of our next generation of folks who will continue this fight. And unfortunately, it's a fight that's going to need to continue, but uh, they will continue to breathe life into the movement uh, and to keep uh, that spirit going. Tristan Kuhlman, PFLAG, York Region's president. Thank you so much for your honesty and your passion and your compassion and your courage. Thank you. No, thank you very much, Anne. Coming up next, tech training for veterans. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. The D-Day operation of June the 6th, 1944, combined allied land, air, and sea forces to become the largest invasion in human history, and it was the beginning of the end of World War II. As we approach the 79th anniversary next Tuesday, our thoughts turn to the veterans of the Second World War, particularly those still living, and also to our modern-day veterans, many of whom are in the midst of battles of a different kind. Jeff Musson is the founder of Coding for Veterans, a unique and powerful program designed to help today's veterans transition out of the military and into civilian life. Welcome to the feed, Jeff. So happy to have you with us today. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you. So on your website, it says from deployment to employment. That almost says it all right there. Yeah, so with Coding for Veterans, we help Canada's military veterans retrain in the areas of software development and cybersecurity. And the program's delivered in partnership with the University of Ottawa. And what better way to honor the sacrifice of men and women who have served our country with distinction than be able to provide them with, you know, stable careers in Canada's tech sector? How challenging is it for an individual to transition from the military to civilian life, Jeff? Um, it is very challenging, but it is doable. And one thing that we have learned um, with our program, and there are now over 400 students in the program, is that if the students, you know, really have a mentor-protege kind of relationship and they are able to learn from others that have gone before them, it really helps to streamline that release from the military into civilian work. You know, it's interesting, Economics 101, supply and demand. So you're offering the supply, but there is the demand. So what is the demand when it comes to veterans who are trying to find work outside of the military, and how crucial is what you offer to them? So I can tell you with our program, we have over a 90% placement rate of graduates in jobs. And in Canada, the latest stats that I've seen, there are approximately 147,000 IT jobs that are projected to go unfilled in the next 12 to 18 months. So the demand is there. Um, salaries are, 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 are phenomenal for uh, people coming into this area. And, you know, the way we see it is that employers are able to get 
those soft skills that someone from the military has, like attention to detail, leadership, um, you know, can-do attitude wrapped together with uh, industry tech certifications, it's a win-win. Up until this point, has there been a, a, a real challenge for veterans finding jobs outside of the military? Uh, yeah, and, and uh, what's interesting is is that, uh, again, I'm talking generalities here, but with, when in the military, people are really preconditioned to not brag about their experiences, and it's much a team effort. When it comes to getting a job, you really have to you know, kind of brag about yourself. So it's, it's not part of that, that DNA culture that someone from the military has. In addition to, um, employers are now finally starting to see the value of hiring someone that has served in our armed forces. So the good news is, is that it's becoming easier today than it was in the past. And why software development? Why a career in cybersecurity? It, to me, just as a, as a civilian, but with a military father, of course, it's not the first thing that comes to mind when I think of a military woman or man. Well, yeah, except what's interesting is, is that um, you, uh, individuals coming out of our program, and I, I love this one phrase that one of our graduates had, they said, I've now gone from serving on the battlefield to now serving in cyberspace. <laughs> and so the battlefield is really shifting from what we've traditionally considered the battlefield to now being in cyberspace. And look no further than what's going on over in the you know Ukraine and Russian war, right? I mean, technology is really playing a key and pivotal role in that. And so you're right. At first blush, you're like, well, what's the, the connection? Well, you start scratching under the surface and you see that there's a lot of similarities. Can you walk us through the program? And let's start with the online intake assessment. Yeah, so what happens is, is that we want to make sure that we have the right people in the program because technology is not for everyone. So if someone's interested in applying to our program, uh, the first step is um, we send them a soft skills assessment to make sure that their soft skills align with what it takes to be successful in the tech industry. And then we also have a very much a, an in-depth interview, um, you know, to, to make sure that the individuals are set up for success. Then when they enroll in the program, we've also introduced some very key um, uh, aspects uh, to the Coding for Veterans uh, program that helps the veterans along. One key one is called an organizational behavior course because the culture in the military is far different than the culture in the tech industry. And so we're able to teach those um, in our program really kind of the nuances of what it takes to be successful in the tech industry. And our program, um, you know, uh, not only is it a university education, but students end up writing their industry certification exams, which is what employers look for when they are hiring people. And classes are 100% online, and I understand that tuition is paid for if you qualify. Yeah, absolutely. And what happens is with the um, uh, program itself, it really... Uh, is funded for veterans through the uh, Veterans Education Transition Benefit. And then Coding for Veterans, we were very fortunate because the provincial government earlier this year gave us funding uh, to fund spouses, um, family members, and reservists who are interested in taking our program that live in Ontario 
to apply and have their tuition 100% by the province. This is a, a very unique program that um, uh, Coding for Veterans uh, launched in partnership with Employment Ontario. Have you seen a lot of success, Jeff? This has been around for a little while, and I'm so, so grateful, we all are, that you started this program. Have you seen good success? Absolutely. And what's interesting is, is that we actually had uh, an economic impact study completed on a program by Accenture uh, in the fall of 2022. And the findings of that study showed that someone leaving the military and coming into our program will see a bump of a initial salary of approximately $30,000 a year uh, versus not taking our program. Um, the other thing is, is that um, it also puts students on the same earning trajectory as someone with a four-year university degree. Um, the government actually sees a return on their investment in other two in under two years. And one of the best stats of all is by the time one of our graduates retires, they will have pumped an additional $1.3 million into Canada's GDP. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Where do people go if they want to find out more, take that big first step? Absolutely. So go to codingforveterans.com and we have an apply now section on our website. And we would love, um, uh, you know, for anyone who uh, is interested to reach out to us. And um, it's really a unique uh, opportunity uh, for veterans and family members and others. Uh, that want to retrain in the area of software development and cybersecurity. Well done, Jeff Musson. Coding for Veterans, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Perfect. Thanks, Ann. <laughs>We all know that one of the keys to a long life is active living. Now the federal government is making a financial investment into several seniors' programs in Vaughan. Glenn Perkins with the details. The investment is more than $129,000 and will be divided between six community-based projects. To tell us more, we are joined by Francesco Sabera, Member of Parliament for Vaughan Woodbridge. Mr. Sabera, welcome to The Feed. Oh, well, hello to everyone and hello to all the listeners of The Feed in 105.9 The Region. It's great to be here. Mr. Sabera, what's the reasoning behind this funding into seniors' programs? This, this program called the New Horizons for Seniors program, it's a program that's been in place since 2004. It's funded over nearly 37,000 projects in hundreds of communities, much like in the city of Vaughan, in my riding of Vaughan Woodbridge. The goal is to allow uh, seniors to empower themselves in their communities and improve uh, the overall well-being of the seniors, their health and well-being in their communities. Now, six community groups are benefiting from the funding. What was the selection criteria? The selection uh, criteria is very straightforward. The community-based funding project level, which these, these six recipients received, is you know, to promote volunteerism uh, among seniors and, and other generations, you know, engaging seniors through uh, financial literacy, uh, making them aware of elder abuse, supporting seniors' uh, social participation and inclusion of seniors, and then uh, finally, you know, providing uh, for capital assistance for new and existing community projects and programs that are aimed for seniors. It's really about, you know, overall lifting the health and well-being of seniors within our communities. What organizations are the recipients? Uh, this year in my riding, the, there were six recipients. It's actually very diverse. Uh, we have everything from the, the Vietnamese Association of Vaughan, uh, Hospice Vaughan, uh, the Alpini Grupo Vaughan, Touch and Love and Hope Foundation, 
and, and then two others. And really, if, if you read over the mandates of each of these organizations, it's really about engaging seniors on different levels, but overall to improve their health and overall well-being, and also to make our community much more inclusive for seniors. But it's really about the, the overall goal of each of the programs and how it promotes the inclusivity of seniors by improving their health and well-being and what they're offering. Some of them, uh, the groups provide Tai Chi classes, some of them physical activities, some of them uh, a series on uh, on lectures in terms of financial literacy, uh, using you know things like using the internet, the supporting healthy aging, uh, and so forth, dance classes, getting more involved in, in physical activities, and, and then also over, just increasing the overall awareness of information resources that are, are available for seniors that they may not know about. The pandemic had a negative impact on not only the physical but also the mental health of seniors, and it's easy to forget that they still have an important role to play in the community despite their age. Oh, I think, um, Glenn, you, 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 hit, <clears throat> you hit the nail on the button there. You know, COVID-19 and the pandemic had a devastating impact on our seniors, especially uh, those that are alone and, and you know, maybe their loved one has passed or so forth and they live alone. Uh, and you can just imagine for that two-year period. And then also many of the seniors, their social activity, their social life revolves around going to, you know, one of the many community centers in the city of Vaughan and playing bingo and bocce and, and other card games and just, you know, being with their friends on, on a weekly basis, sometimes seeing them two or three times, that is their social activity. That's where they chat. That's where they catch up. And, you know, their kids are working and the grandkids are at school. They're busy. And, and for these seniors, that loss of that, that social interaction, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to use the word devastating, but, but it really was. I know it's a, it's a strong word. But for a lot of these seniors, it was really, really tough during that time. So to see this program back up and running in the horizons for seniors, to see it in person again for these seniors is just such a great thing. Mr. Silvera, this announcement builds on the government's commitment to improving the quality of life for seniors, doesn't it? Yes, it does. We, we want all seniors to have a, uh, a dignified and, and secure retirement, whether it's financially and also having the resources uh, that they need to, to have a, a retirement that they can be happy with. And, you know, it's always a work in progress. But, you know, the New Horizons for Seniors program is something that we could all be proud of. You know, it's been in existence for, for nearly 20 years uh, it's, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars of funding has gone into it over this time. And I know in my riding, when I visit the seniors organizations that are participating in this, the, the seniors that are benefiting from these investments, you know, it's up to $25,000 per group. They're just smiling. They're having a great time and they're learning. And, we, you know, we truly are building a more inclusive community uh, by running a program like the New Horizons for Seniors program. What message do you have for seniors in the Vaughan Woodbridge area and across the region concerning physical fitness? Oh, the, the message I would send is very simple. You know, as, as, as our population ages and demographics are, are, are of the like, I, I encourage all my seniors to get out. Join one of the main, many seniors organizations uh, that exist in Vaughan. Go to the community centers. Uh, there are seniors organizations that uh, run the gamut of you know, diversity, uh, of activity. Uh, there are so many activities at the community centers that we have. We at the federal government level put a lot of money to revitalize community centers across Canada, and we've done it for uh, obviously in large part because you know seniors during the day need that physical activity, that social interaction, and they get it at our community centers, they get it at our libraries, and they get it when they're with uh, their friends. And I encourage all the seniors to to reach out. You, you know, don't be afraid to not to, of course, and and, and reach out because. You know, you're going to have a great time. I see it all the time. Francesco Sabera, Member of Parliament for Vaughan Woodbridge, thank you for joining us on The Feed.
Next, helping young people get their start in business and gain valuable skills. Kevin Frankish with that story. There are almost three-quarter of a million job vacancies in Ontario, which is an all-time high. Sadly, there's a large population of marginalized youth who could fill a lot of these positions but lack the skills and even the opportunity to do so. And Eskin is with Newcomer Youth Initiatives at JVS Toronto and joins me. Tell me all about YEP, the Youth Entrepreneurship Program that will help these youth to bring their business ideas to life and gain meaningful skills. Hi, Anna. Hi. Pleasure telling you about this. Now, so JVS, now, yeah. now I, I said YEP, but is it really, do you say it? Yep. That's what I call it to myself, but we <laughs> do say Youth Entrepreneurship Program. And uh, it really allows marginalized youth to follow their passions, bring their business ideas to life, and gain meaningful entrepreneurial skills. Now, um, we do provide a grant to launch their business. We help them create a professional business plan, work with a mentor, learn financial management and marketing skills. We also assist them in gaining a variety of very important information on entrepreneurial ideas and concepts that otherwise they would struggle to find information about. They learn about mm-hmm. legal aspects of business management. And uh, as I mentioned, they do work closely with a seasoned mentor on all questions and needs that may come up as a setting in a group setting and uh, one-on-one as well. So I find it very interesting that, that we have on one side all of these jobs that, that need to be filled like yesterday. And we have on the other side a bunch of kids who could move in tomorrow and fill these jobs. We we need to get them together. And I guess that's what the YEP or we'll call it the YEP program because yep, we can do it. Yes, absolutely. So we do have a lot of youth nowadays that are very interested in entrepreneurial concept and starting their own businesses. And while there are a lot of job vacancies, um, the marginalized youth that we are dealing with, they don't have all the access to information and means to to actually go ahead with their entrepreneurial ideas. That's where the Youth Entrepreneurship Program, as we call it, YEP, comes in very handy. Because as I mentioned, they do get a grant for it. And most importantly, they do gain so much important information. For example, this past year, we did have um, someone who, who was really well informed about the food industry, but he really lacked all information on business and how to create a business. And through that program, he learned that. So now he uses the templates that he um, learned how to use to plan his time, financial, social media posts. He has all those tools thanks to programs like Youth Entrepreneurship Program. Help me uh, uh, understand who these marginalized youth are. Where do they come from? Who are they? They come from a variety of communities that we help serve at at JVS Toronto. They don't have access to the financial aid as well as to just the time it takes to invest into starting your own business and the information that you need. Because quite frankly, the information you need is probably one of the biggest parts that they're lacking. So what, what is the first step that people do when they, when they get involved with this program? The first step is to submit your interest on our website, jvstoronto.org. And uh, once they do, they get in touch with me. I look through their applications. I reach out. I ask them to submit a one-pager on what their business ideas are. It's very easygoing. It's very forthcoming and open. 
And then there is an interviewing process. Once they go through the interview, we select four to five participants every single year. Um, the number changes from year to year. And then the selected youth go ahead with the program. How popular has it been? It's been very popular. A lot of interest in the program since it does help so many youth just achieve heights that they never thought would be possible. Now, the the website is uh, jdstoronto.org, uh, and you're saying just a one-page explanation of what they want to do. So it doesn't even have to be in a in a professional format because that's what you're going to be actually teaching them. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly the idea, that they just submit um, a quick form on our website, and then I reach out over email because it goes straight to my email, and we teach them everything they need to know. You've had a lot of success from this program from what it sounds like. A lot of success. We recently actually had one of our former participants launch her business line in one of the most famous um, boutiques in uh, Ah, Toronto. Wow. That's really cool. Yes, exactly. And it's a lot of uh, good for the soul and good for the participants. Yeah. So the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. And here's your first step. It, it it sounds very easy to, to start out, at least. And uh, so all you have to do is just go to jvstoronto.org and all the information is there. Anna Eskin is the manager of Newcomer Youth Initiatives and has been speaking with me. Thanks so much for this, Anna. Thank you. After the break, Amanda Marshall on her summer tour and Canadian Music Week. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Next week, we will celebrate Canadian Music Week. No better way to kick it off than with singer-songwriter Amanda Marshall. Here's Christina Lavecchia with the new album and Amanda's first tour in years. and Believe in You are just some of the hits that had us fall in love with Amanda Marshall and her music. Hearing those songs takes me back to a nostalgic time from my childhood, as I'm sure it does for many other fans in their own way. Fast forwarding 20 years later, Amanda has a new single out, I Hope She Cheats, which is the lead single off of her brand new album, Heavy Lifting. Plus, she's headed on a cross-Canada tour kicking off in June. To talk all those good things, Amanda Marshall's here. Thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome back and congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. You returned to the spotlight after two decades sharing new music with the world and your fans once again. How does it feel? Uh, I have to say it's been a little overwhelming, mostly because I came into this with no expectations. A lot of people have been asking me, what what were your expectations? I had zero expectations, (laughs) but the enthusiasm with which this has been received has just been really, really lovely and really gratifying 
and the communication that I'm getting, the text messages and the emails, letters and phone calls and all of that have just really been more than I could have asked for, more than I could ever have expected. So we're really, really thrilled. It was a different time in the 90s and early 2000s. The use of the internet and social media was not quite the same as it is today. Does connecting with your fans feel different this time around? A little bit, yeah. I was just saying to someone, I think I look at social media probably the way my grandparents looked at television, which is that it was sort of a novelty that became a necessity. And, you know, I think that it is such a a gift to be able to communicate more directly just generally speaking, with one another, but particularly for people in the creative community, it's really a gift to be able to communicate directly with your audience. Um, I think everybody kind of does it their own way, which I think is, you know, which is also great. But for me, it's a resource. I think it's an invaluable resource for most musicians to be able to get your music out to a much wider audience and to have that kind of direct line to an audience is fantastic. From the many comments that I have read online, fans are excited for your return and the new music. One comment reads, so good to have you back. Can't wait to attend your concert in Toronto. Wishing you much success. You still have that powerful voice. How does it feel to hear that immediate feedback? It's fantastic. I have to admit, I don't necessarily read the comments myself, mostly because like everybody in the creative community, you know, everybody's got a a fragile ego, and you never know what's coming your way. But I definitely, definitely, I have a mom who reads the comments, and I have (laughs) friends who read the comments, and people are always wanting to tell me what people have to say, which is, you know, which is great. And I'm really, I'm I'm happy, and I'm very lucky that uh, all of it's been really positive so far. I mean, you sort of take the good, and you take the bad, and if you believe the good, you have to believe the bad, too. So I try to keep sort of an even balance. Well, it's all been positive, so rest assured, it's all been good. (laughs) Great. And when fans hear music from their favorite artists, they may not realize the business aspect and some of the complications that might come with it. And that is something that you have experienced during your absence from music. Can you share that with us? Sure. Everybody's been asking me, so what happened? What happened? Mm. And there's really no great sexy answer. I mean, the best I've come up with is I was coming off the end of a, a tour in 2002. It was the end of the tour cycle for my third album, Everybody's Got a Story. And I fired my manager, and that triggered a sort of a decade and a half of legal wrangling back and forth. I don't know if anybody out there has ever tried to get divorced from somebody who doesn't want to get divorced, but it was a lot like that where, you know, you just, you really just want a clean break and somebody doesn't want to get divorced. So they just hang on and on. And it really becomes kind of a chronic distraction in your life. And you don't really want to do anything new because you don't want the new thing to get sucked into this kind of vortex of kind of negative energy. So, uh, you know, sometimes it takes a while to resolve these things. It's not the end of the world. Uh, when it's happening to you, it kind of feels early on like it's the end of the world. But I was very lucky. I'm, I'm extremely lucky. I have a great, great support system around me. And the other thing it afforded me was the opportunity to have total creative freedom over the creation of this new album. I wasn't working within the confines of any kind of infrastructure. And, you know, nobody was waiting for it. So I was free to really take my time and make mistakes and change things. And that's something that you don't see every day. Um, So for me, it was really a blessing. It really turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. Why do you feel now is the right time for your return to releasing music to your fans and everybody? I think probably just because, well, in a lot of ways, you know, I was so happy with the end result of the album that I kind of didn't care if it ever came out, which sounds really selfish, but I don't mean it that way. What I mean is, I was really satisfied with it, 
And so I was sort of sitting on it and enjoying it myself and thinking, well, I don't know if I ever really need to put this out. I've done everything with it that I really wanted to achieve. Then other people in my circle started to hear it. And they really convinced me and said, you know, other people really need to hear this. I had one friend in particular who in 2017, as I sort of came to the end of finishing the album, was saying to me, you know, you're too young to retire. You really shouldn't waste your gift. And that really hit me. We ran a little bit into the pandemic. The album was finished just as the pandemic hit. So because no one was waiting for it, we'd waited this long. It seemed worth an extra, an extra year or two of delay. So I'm, I'm really happy with the timing of it. I think everything happens in its own good time. Well, I'm glad everybody convinced you <laughs> to release the <laughs> album. <laughs> so that's good. Well, look at how it all turned out. I hope she cheats on you with a basketball player. The album Heavy Lifting is set for release on June 9th. Your brand new song, I Hope She Cheats, is out. What inspired the track? Well, this song is actually, funnily enough, it was the last song added to the record. It's the only song on the record that I didn't write, but it had a transformative effect on the rest of the album, which is why I really wanted to release it first. I Hope She Cheats was written by Marsha Ambrosius, who was one half of an R&B duo out of the UK in the early 2000s called Flowetry. And Marsha is an incredible, really gifted songwriter, and she's a great singer, too. And she recorded this song herself in 2000, and I think it was 2011. I heard it some years later by accident in a clothing store, and it stopped me cold because it was so clever and it was so funny and it was so vicious. To me, it was such a unique and interesting approach to subject matter that I was familiar with, sub- subject matter that I had heard before. And that's something that you don't hear every day in pop music. So I went home and I wrote uh, a new arrangement of it, which you hear on the album, which is quite different than Marsh's original arrangement of it. To me, it influenced the rest of the album because it caused me to really re-examine some of my own songwriting. And there was a levity and a kind of humor to her songwriting that I wanted to inject into the rest of the album. So we got there, and I'm so, so proud of it. Um, But I just loved this song, and I thought it should be on the album. What can we expect from the album? Uh, You had mentioned the song I Hope She Cheats kind of set the tone for the rest of um, the song. So what, what can fans expect? Much like I Hope She Cheats, the album has a real kind of rock and roll bent. And what I mean by that is I'm a rock and roll singer, but I lean very heavily into the roll part of rock and roll, which is that undergirding, that kind of R&B um, groove underbelly of rock music. I think we sort of tend to conflate rock music with rock and roll music, and they're not the same. Rock music is absent that kind of groove element, right? It's very straight, kind of straight time, straight ahead. So the album in terms of subject matter and approach, is very similar to my debut album in that it tackles some of the same subject matter. There's a song coming out a little later called Rainbows and Gasoline on the new album, which deals with some of the same subject matter as Birmingham did. Birmingham was about a woman who escaped uh, an abusive relationship in the middle of the night. Rainbows and Gasoline examines that same subject matter from a different perspective. This song is about a woman who recognizes the signs early and is able to escape the relationship before it escalates. And to me, that's always really interesting to see how many different angles you can take on one particular subject in a song. Uh, You know, songs are supposed to tell stories. 
So that's what this album does, and I'm really, really proud of it. I'm so excited for people to hear it. You're also releasing a vinyl reissue of your 1995 self-titled Breakthrough debut album. It's one of the only 24 Canadian albums to achieve diamond certification in Canada. How is it for you listening to your, your earlier work? Okay, so I have to be honest. I will give you the honest truth here. I don't listen to my own albums. <laughs> and I know a lot of musicians who don't. And I, I don't know if that's considered a dirty little secret or not. But, uh, you know, like a lot of people, like a lot of creative people, I have, I have friends who are actors who don't, can't watch themselves in movies. I think once you've done it, it's over for you. Mm-hmm. And, and it belongs to the audience. Um, I will listen to it if there is, in the case of like this final deluxe reissue, I will listen to it to check the remastering. And it's always fun to hear that because, of course, it doesn't sound... To me, it doesn't sound like me. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like a different me. Um, it sounds like me then, and I'm used to me now. So it's fun. But it's not something that I indulge in a lot. Occasionally, I will hear myself, you know, out in public, or I'll hear myself on the radio, and I'm always really tickled when I do because oftentimes I don't immediately know that it's me, and sometimes I'll think, wow, this is, this is kind of a great song. Who is this? And then, I, and then I'm struck by, oh, yeah, right, that's me. <laughs> Well, we're looking forward to hearing you live. 25 and counting, the heavy lifting tour kicks off on June 11th in New Brunswick with two stops in Toronto. We love you so much here that the 16th is sold out, but the 17th has been added at Massey Hall. How are you feeling leading up to your return on stage, especially in your hometown of Toronto? I'm fantastically excited, and I'm really excited to be playing Massey Hall, obviously, because it is not just a a great venue, but it's also where I saw a lot of the uh, first real meaningful shows that I was, uh, you know, that I got to see when I was a kid. Um, it's always great to play in your hometown, particularly to a sold-out crowd. You know, you can't, you, can't, you can't really ask for anything better. I'm so excited to be taking this tour across the country this uh, summer because there's so many places that we haven't seen in so long, not just because of the pandemic, but obviously because I was, I was um, not touring. And so to me to be seeing some of the venues that we've played before again is really, really exciting. And I'm, I'm so kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to see who's, who's coming to the shows. I'm excited to see them singing these songs. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some new material from the new album. It's going to be sort of a full-spectrum offering. It's going to be a full-spectrum show. It's to be able to do it directly and have that connection with an audience, you can't ask for anything better. Head on over to amandamarshall.com for your tickets. I'm really excited that you're back. Amanda, it was really an honor and pleasure to speak with you, and thank you for joining me on the feed. Uh, Thanks a lot. Talk to you again. We move next to the RBC Canadian Open set to tee off on Tuesday. Jim Lang takes us to the Oakdale Golf and Country Club. Well, we're counting down the days to this year's RBC Canadian Open taking place at the historic Oakdale Golf and Country Club around the Jane and 401 area of Toronto. And it's going to be a great tournament running the first week of June and culminating on June 11th. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by their tournament director of the RBC Canadian Open, Brian Crawford. Brian, how are you? Hey, Jim. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having us on. 
It's a pleasure. Um, it's it's getting busy this time of year in the PGA season. Uh, we just had the PGA Championship. Uh, there's so many storylines, and it's shaping up to be quite a star-studded cast of golfers for this year's RBC Canadian Open. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is kind of when the season really starts to tighten down. We've you know got a few majors under our belts. Uh, the uh, FedEx Cup playoffs are just a couple months away, so. Um, you know, it kind of is when, uh, you know, all the rubber needs to hit the road, so to speak, and we're thrilled to have uh, another fantastic field, you know, headlined by Rory McIlroy uh, back to try to defend his title for a record-setting third uh, consecutive RBC Canadian Open in, uh, in a row. So uh, everything's coming together really great. The event uh, is poised to be, once again, the biggest we've ever had on record after what was a record-setting year last year as well. Before we get to some of the other uh, notables, uh, for this, explain to the listeners what makes Oakdale a special course and a challenge for these golfers. Yeah, it's a fantastic property, and it's one that not a lot of people are really familiar with. Uh, it's nearly 100 years old, 1927, uh, so, or sorry, 1926, excuse me. So it's been here for a long time. It's a Stanley Thompson design course that's uh, actually got uh, 27 holes. So we've taken a composite uh, routing of uh, each of the nine that kind of selected the best ones and put together a routing to create a championship course that is, you know, completely unique for, uh, for this tournament. So we've got, um, we've got a course that's kind of accentuated by, you know, kind of some tight fairways, small greens, you know, in the front nine and a little bit more wide open on the back nine, uh, with some really challenging features, you know, two creeks and streams that run through the course and they're just generally uh, a really fantastic property. So we've got a really good balance of, some really challenging holes, and then some opportunities for scoring as well. So uh, we're excited to uh, really debut it to the world and to have the PGA Tour players out here. Uh, Brian, for a lot of Canadian golf fans, they're waiting for this year. Maybe this is the year. A Canadian wins the RBC Canadian Open. Uh, Corey Connors will lead a strong contingent of Canadian golfers, and there's no reason why they can't be in contention on Sunday. Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, they've been in contention on Sunday, our last two editions. You know, Adam Hadwin back in 2019, Corey uh, charged last year as well. You know, Rory just kind of ran away with uh, ran away with it in 19, and and uh, obviously we had the great duel with uh, Tony Finau and JT last year. But mm. you know, our Canadians are you know amongst the leaders every week in week out on the PGA Tour. You know, we've had more wins this year than we've ever had uh, by Canadians on the PGA Tour, with obviously more Canadians on the PGA Tour uh, in one time than ever. So. Uh, there's no question about it. You know, we saw Corey in the hunt this past weekend uh, in playing some fabulous golf. And it, it really isn't, uh, it's just a matter of when, you know, not a matter of if. We're going to see a Canadian win the, win the RBC Canadian Open again. And, uh, you know, we're really hopeful that that's, uh, that's this year. Now, Michael Block is a tremendous sports story, not just golf story. And, I mean, I mean, the fact that you guys were able to secure him a spot so early after the PGA Championship was great. But what is it about him, his story, that just has touched so many sports fans across North America? Yeah, it really is just a you know, wonderful story. You know, the people love kind of the underdog story. And, you know, by by all means, you know, Mike Block's a professional golfer. You know, he, he's played, um, you know, in PG Tour events before and, and has been a professional uh, for years. So, uh, you know, he know, obviously knows what he's doing out there. But um, I think just the just the underdog story, you know, a guy that maybe, you know, wouldn't have expected much from, you know, in this tournament, um, to go out and play as well as he did with the world's best players um, and to do it in the fashion that he did, to make some of the shots that he did. Obviously on Sunday, you know, not only, not only the ace, but the up and down on 18, 
And to do it in kind of like such a humble way that people really kind of connected with the person, I think, more than anything, you know, versus the golfer. And, um, you know, I kind of think that, you know, kind of, it kind of is a story of like the, you know, the everyman in mm. many ways that, uh, that people have kind of resonated with and that personality that, you know, we've seen in his interviews and, and when he's, uh, you know, when he's been in front of the camera, uh, you know, off the golf course. So we're really thrilled to have him. You know, he's a great story in golf. Um, you know, great ambassador for the game and, and Canadians will, uh, you know, get the chance to see him, uh, take on our national open. Speaking to Brian Crawford, tournament director for the upcoming RBC Canadian Open, a big part of it also is the concert series, along with your friends with Live Nation and Golf Canada, and the headliner this year, none other than the Canadian icon, Alanis Morissette. Yeah, so we're thrilled to have that back again, the RBC X Music Concert Series. You know, this is a big initiative of RBCs and their music arm and, and what they do in the music space. And to have it part of uh, the RBC Canadian Open has been tremendous. We've had some great artists perform in, in our previous two editions. So, you know, to have, you know, really not a bigger Canadian icon than Lance Morissette performing on uh, Saturday night. And then we've got the Black Eyed Peas, another band that's played the Super Bowl, one of the you know largest in the world, you know, unbelievable number of hits playing on Friday night. It's going to make just for such a, you know, a fun environment. You know, it really is what we've tried to build here over the last number of years and the last number of opens, creating, uh, uh, you know, a party, a celebration uh, that's centered around golf, but is about so much more than that. It's about our, uh, about our, about our food initiative, about the music initiatives, about the community element that uh, we bring to the tournament as well. And, you know, I think that uh, people that have come out for the first time have really, uh, you know, their eyes have really been opened about what a great time it is to be out on a golf course watching professional golf and engaging in everything that surrounds uh, the tournament here at the beginning of June. You know, the Canadian Open has such a rich history. It's a national open, Brian. Maybe a lot of listeners don't realize, what is some of the feedback you get from the touring professionals after they wrap up their weekend at the RBC? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're the third oldest tournament in the world, you know, after the Open Championship in the U.S. Open. We have a tremendous amount of history you know, every notable player, uh, you know, has played in and won, with the exception of one who failed to win it, and he still credits it uh, as kind of his biggest disappointment, and that's Jack Nicholas never having won the RBC Canadian Open. But, you know, Mr. Palmer won his first mm -hmm. DGA Tour championship at the RBC Canadian Open. Obviously, Tiger had a super memorable uh, championship. And so, and the list goes on and on. And the, the reality is, is that, you know, we have as much history and heritage in, as there is in golf. Canadian fans absolutely love golf, love the tournament, and have come out in greater numbers every year, you know, uh, over the last couple of years. And so the players that are out here, you know, you, you don't have to look any further than, you know, Rory's comments last year about just how wild it was on the rink hole and that his ears were ringing. And, you know, being in an environment, like he, he didn't remember being in an environment like that um, previously, and and that's really you know what the event is all about. You know, kind of the magic that we saw last year, um, you know, with the fans and, and the enthusiasm for uh, for golf and for the tournament. So you know, we um, people you know they love coming to Canada. Obviously, you know it's a it's a great place to to come. We take really good care of the players. The fans are incredible. They you know the exact right mix of enthusiasm and kind of respect for you know the uh, traditions of golf as well. So. Um, we're really, really proud of where the tournament is. We're really proud of our, you know, players, our team RBC players, our current champion, our Canadians. And, um, you know, we're really, uh, really excited to do it again this year and, and have everybody here at Oakdale.
It's going to be awesome. Oakdale Golf and Country Club at Jane and 401 in Toronto. Starts June 6th. Tournament tees off June 8th. Wraps up June 11th. Alanis Morissette, the Black Eyed Peas. Everything you want in golf and music and much more. Brian Crawford, thanks for joining me. I can't wait for this year's event. Uh, thanks so much, Jim. Look forward to seeing you. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.